Act One of The Conscious Lovers by Richard Steele. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Conscious Lovers. Illogenis narrationis, quod impersonis positum est, debetiberi sermones festivitatem, animorum dissimilitudinum, gravitatum, lenitatum spem metum, suspicionum, desiderium, dissimulationum, misericordiam, rerum varietatis, fortunae commutationum, insperatum incommodum, subitam lentitium, jecundum exitum rerum. Cicero, Rhetorica ad Herenium, Liber Unus. Footnote. The kind of narrative which is presented on the stage ought to be marked by gaiety of dialogue, diversity of character, seriousness, tenderness, hope, fear, suspicion, desire, pity, variety of events, changes of fortune, unexpected disaster, sudden joy, and a happy ending. End of footnote. The Conscious Lovers, a comedy which had been long in preparation, was acted at Drury Lane Theatre on November the 7th, 1722, with new scenes and all the characters new dressed, and with Booth, who had acted the part of Pamphilus, the prototype of young Bevel, at Westminster with great success. Wilkes, Myrtle, Sibber, Tom, Mills, Sir John Bevel, Mrs. Oldfield, Indiana, and Mrs. Younger, Phyllis, in the principal parts. The play ran for eighteen nights and was a great success. It was often revived between 1722 and 1760, and was acted at Covent Garden in 1810 and at Bath in 1818. Phyllis was Peg Woffington's second speaking character in Dublin, and she took that part on March 9, 1741, during her first season in London. The play was published by Tonson on December 1st, 1722, with the date 1723 on the title page. The general idea of the piece is taken from Terence's Andrea, but the original is widely departed from after the opening scenes. Collie Sibber lent material aid in preparing the play for representation. It was attacked by John Dennis in two pamphlets and defended by Benjamin Victor and others. To the King May it please your Majesty, after having aspired to the highest and most laudable ambition, that of following the cause of liberty, I should not have humbly petitioned your majesty for a direction of the theatre had I not believed success in that province and happiness much to be wished by an honest man and highly conducing to the prosperity of the commonwealth. It is in this view I lay before your majesty a comedy which the audience, in justice to themselves, has supported and encouraged and is the prelude of what, by your Majesty's influence and favour, may be attempted in future representations. The imperial mantle, the royal vestment, and the shining diadem are what strike ordinary minds, but your Majesty's native goodness, your passion for justice, and her constant assessor mercy, is what continually surrounds you in the view of intelligent spirits, and gives hope to the supplicant, who sees he has more than succeeded in giving your majesty an opportunity of doing good. Our king is above the greatness of royalty, and every act of his will which makes another man happy has ten times more charms in it than one that makes himself appear raised above the condition of others but even this carries unhappiness with it. For calm dominion, equal grandeur, 
and familiar greatness do not easily affect the imagination of the vulgar, who cannot see power but in terror. And as fear moves mean spirits, and love prompts great ones to obey, the insinuations of malcontents are directed accordingly, and the unhappy people are ensnared, from want of reflection, into disrespectful ideas of their gracious and amiable sovereign, and then only begin to apprehend the greatness of their master when they have incurred his displeasure. As your majesty was invited to the throne of a willing people for their own sakes, and has ever enjoyed it with contempt of the ostentation of it, we beseech you to protect us who revere your title as we love your person. Tis to be a savage to be a rebel, and they who have fallen from you have not so much forfeited their allegiance as lost their humanity. And therefore, if it were only to preserve myself from the imputation of being amongst the insensible and abandoned, I would beg permission, in the most public manner possible, to profess myself, with the utmost sincerity and zeal, Sire, Your Majesty's most devoted subject and servant, Richard Steele. The Preface this comedy has been received with universal acceptance, for it was in every part excellently performed, and there needs no other applause of the actors but that they excelled according to the dignity and difficulty of the character they represented. But this great favour done to the work in acting renders the expectation still the greater from the author to keep up the spirit in the representation of the closet or any other circumstance of the reader, whether alone or in company, to which I can only say that it must be remembered a play is to be seen, and is made to be represented with the advantage of action, nor can appear but with half the spirit without it. For the greatest effect of a play in reading is to excite the reader to go and see it, and when he does so it is then a play has the effect of example and precept. The chief design of this was to be an innocent performance, and the audience have abundantly shown how ready they are to support what is visibly intended that way. Nor do I make any difficulty to acknowledge that the whole was writ for the sake of the scene of the fourth act, wherein Mr. Bevel evades the quarrel with his friend, and hope it may have some effect on the Goths and Vandals that frequent the theatres, or a more polite audience may supply their absence. But this incident, and the case of the father and daughter, are esteemed by some people as no subjects of comedy. But I cannot be of their mind, for anything that has its foundation in happiness and success must be allowed to be the subject of comedy, and sure it must be an improvement of it to introduce a joy too exquisite for laughter that can have no spring but in delight, which is the case of this young lady. I must, therefore, contend that the tears which were shed on that occasion flowed from reason and good sense, and that men ought not to be laughed at for weeping till we are come to a more clear notion of what is to be imputed to the hardness of the head and the softness of the heart. And I think it was very politely said of Mr. Wilkes, to one who told him there was a general weeping for Indiana, I'll warrant he'll fight ne'er the worst for that. To be apt to give way to the impressions of humanity is the excellence of a right disposition and the natural working of a well-turned spirit. But as I have suffered by critics who have got no farther than to inquire whether they ought to be pleased or not, I would willingly find them proper a matter for their employment and revive here 
a song which was omitted for want of a performer, and designed for the entertainment of Indiana, Signor Carbonelli, instead of it played on the fiddle. And it is for want of a singer that such advantageous things are said of an instrument which were designed for a voice. The song is the distress of a lovesick maid, and may be a fit entertainment for some small critics to examine whether the passion is just or the distress male or female. 1. From place to place forlorn I go, with downcast eyes a silent shade, forbidden to declare my woe to speak till spoken to, afraid. 2. My inward pangs, my secret grief, my soft consenting looks betray. He loves, but gives me no relief. Why speaks not he who may? It remains to say a word concerning Terence, and I am extremely surprised to find what Mr. Sibber told me prove a truth, that what I valued myself so much upon, the translation of him, should be imputed to me as a reproach. Mr. Sibber's zeal for the work, his care and application in instructing the actors and altering the disposition of the scenes when I was, through sickness, unable to cultivate such things myself, has been a very obliging favour and friendship to me. For this reason, I was very hardly persuaded to throw away Terence's celebrated funeral and take only the bare authority of the young man's character. And how I have worked it into an Englishman and made use of the same circumstances of discovering a daughter when we least hoped for one is humbly submitted to the learned reader. Prologue by Mr. Wellstead Spoken by Mr. Wilkes To win your hearts and to secure your praise The comic writers strive by various ways. By subtle stratagems they act their game And leave untried no avenue to fame. One writes the spouse a beating from his wife And says each stroke was copied from the life. Some fix all wit and humour in grimace and make a livelihood of Pinky's face. Here one gay show and costly habits tries, confiding to the judgment of your eyes. Another smuts his scene, a cunning shaver, sure of the rakes and of the wench's favour. Oft have these arts prevailed, and one may guess if practised or again would find success. But the bold sage, the poet of to-night, by new and desperate rules resolved to write. Fain would he give more just applauses rise, and please by wit that scorns the aids of vice. The praise he seeks from worthier motives springs. Such praise as praise to those that give it brings. Your aid most humbly sought, then, Britons lend, And liberal mirth like liberal men defend. No more let ribaldry with licence writ Usurp the name of eloquence or wit. No more let lawless farce uncensured go The lewd dull gleanings of a Smithfield show. Tis yours with breeding to refine the age, to chasten wit, and moralise the stage. Ye modest, wise and good, ye fair, ye brave, to-night the champion of your virtues save. Redeem from long contempt the comic name, and judge politely for your country's fame. Dramatis Personae Sir John Bevel, read by Todd. Mr. Sealand, read by Algie Pug. Bevel Junior in love with Indiana, read by Adrian Stevens. Myrtle in love with Lucinda, read by Adam Bielka.
Simberton, a coxcomb, read by Alan Mapstone. Humphrey, an old servant to Sir John, read by Larry Wilson. Tom, servant to Bevel Junior, read by Thomas Peter. Daniel, a country boy, servant to Indiana, read by Atunismint. Mrs. Sealand, second wife to Sealand, read by Sonia. Isabella, sister to Sealand, read by Catherine Phipps. Indiana, Sealand's daughter by his first wife, read by Rapunzelina. Lucinda, Sealand's daughter by his second wife, read by Devorah Allen. Phyllis, maid to Lucinda, read by T.J. Burns. Servant, read by Lian Yao. Stage directions read by Michael Max. Scene, London. The Conscious Lovers. Act the First. Scene One, Sir John Bevel's House. Enter Sir John Bevel and Humphrey. Have you ordered that I should not be interrupted while I am dressing? Yes, sir. I believe you had something of moment to say to me. Let me see, Humphrey. I think it is now full forty years since I first took thee to be about myself. I thank you, sir. It has been an easy forty years, and I have passed them without much sickness, care, or labor. Thou hast a brave constitution. You are a year or two older than I am, sirrah. You have ever been of that mind, sir. You knave, you know it. I took thee for thy gravity and sobriety in my wild years. Ah, sir, our manners were formed from our different fortunes, not our different age. Wealth gave a loose to your youth, and poverty put a restraint upon mine. Well, Humphrey, you know I have been a kind master to you. I have used you for the ingenuous nature I observed in you from the beginning. More like a humble friend than a servant. I humbly beg you'll be so tender of me as to explain your commands, sir, without any farther preparation. I'll tell thee, then. In the first place, this wedding of my son's, in all probability, shut the door, will never be at all. How, sir? Not to be at all? For what reason is it carried on in appearance? Honest, Humphrey, have patience, and I'll tell thee all in order. I have myself, in some part of my life, lived, indeed, with freedom, but, I hope, without reproach. Now, I thought liberty would be as little injurious to my son. Therefore, as soon as he grew towards man, I indulged him in living after his own manner. I knew not how, otherwise, to judge of his inclination. For what can be concluded from a behavior under restraint and fear? But what charms me above all expression is that my son has never, in the least action, the most distant hint or word, valued himself upon that great estate of his mother's, which, according to our marriage settlement, he has had ever since he came to age. No, sir, on the contrary. He seems afraid of appearing to enjoy it before you or any belonging to you. He is as dependent and resigned to your will as if he had not a farthing but what must come from your immediate bounty. You have ever acted like a good and generous father, and he like an obedient and grateful son. Nay, his carriage is so easy to all with whom he converses that he is never assuming never prefers himself to others, nor ever is guilty of that rough sincerity which a man is not called to, and certainly disobliges most of his acquaintance. To be short, Humphrey, his reputation was so fair in the world, that old Sealand, the great India merchant, has offered his only daughter, and sole heiress to that vast estate of his, as a wife for him. You may be sure I made no difficulties. The match was agreed on, and this very day named for the wedding. What hinders the preceding? Don't interrupt me. You know I was last Thursday at the masquerade. 
My son, you may remember, soon found us out. He knew his grandfather's habit, which I then wore, and though it was the mode in the last age, yet the maskers, you know, followed us as if we had been the most monstrous figures in that whole assembly. I remember indeed a young man of quality in the habit of a clown that was particularly troublesome. Right. He was too much what he seemed to be. You remember how impertinently he followed and teased us, and would know who we were. Humphrey, aside. I know he has a mind to come into that particular. Aye. He followed us till the gentleman who led the lady in the India mantle presented that gay creature to the rustic, and bid him, like Simon in the fable, grow polite by falling in love, and let that worthy old gentleman alone, meaning me. The clown was not reformed, but rudely persisted, and offered to force off my mask. With that, the gentleman, throwing off his own, appeared to be my son, and in his concern for me, tore off that of the nobleman. At this they seized each other, the company called the guards, and in the surprise the lady swooned away, upon which my son quitted his adversary, and had now no care but of the lady. When raising her in his arms, Art thou gone? cried he, for ever? Forbid it, heaven! She revived at his known voice, and with the most familiar, though modest, gesture, hangs in safety over his shoulder weeping, but wept as in the arms of one before whom she could give herself a loose, were she not under observation. While she hides her face in his neck, he carefully conveys her from the company. I have observed this accident has dwelt upon you very strongly. Her uncommon air, her noble modesty, the dignity of her person, and the occasion itself, drew the whole assembly together, and I soon heard it buzzed about she was the adopted daughter of a famous sea officer who had served in France. Now this unexpected and public discovery of my son's so deep concern for her was what I supposed alarmed Mr. Sealand, in behalf of his daughter, to break off the match. You are right. He came to me yesterday and said he thought himself disengaged from the bargain, being credibly informed my son was already married, or worse, to the lady at the masquerade. I palliated matters and insisted on our agreement, but we parted with little less than a direct breach between us. Well, sir, and what notice have you taken of all this to my young master? That's what I wanted to debate with you. I have said nothing to him yet. But look you, Humphrey, if there is so much in this amour of his that he denies upon my summons to marry, I have cause enough to be offended. And then, by my insisting upon his marrying to-day, I shall know how far he is engaged to this lady in masquerade, and from thence only shall be able to take my measures. In the meantime, I would have you find out how far that rogue, his man, is let into his secret. He, I know, will play tricks as much to cross me as to serve his master. Why do you think of him so, sir? I believe he is no worse than I was for you at your son's age. I see it in the rascal's looks. But I have dwelt on these things too long. I'll go to my son immediately, and while I'm gone, your part is to convince his rogue, Tom, that I am in earnest. I'll leave him to you. Exit Sir John Bevel. Well, though this father and son live as well together as possible, yet their fear of giving each other pain is attended with constant mutual uneasiness. I'm sure I have enough to do, to be honest, and yet keep well with them both. But they know I love them, and that makes the task less painful, however. Oh, here's the prince of poor coxcombs, the representative of all the better fed than taught. Ho, ho, Tom, whither so gay and so airy this morning? Enter Tom, singing. Sir, we servants of single gentlemen are another kind of people than you domestic ordinary judges that do business. We are race above you. The pleasures of board wages, tavern dinners, and many a clear gain. Veils, alas, you never heard or dreamt of. Thou hast follies and vices enough for a man of ten thousand a year. 
though tis but as t'other day that i sent for you to town to put you into mr sealand's family that you might learn a little before i put you to my young master who is too gentle for training such a rude thing as you were in too proper obedience you then pulled off your hat to every one you met in the street like a bashful great awkward cub as you were but your great oaken cudgel when you were a bobby became you much better than that dangling stick at your button now you are a fop that's fit for nothing except it hangs there to be ready for your master's hand when you are impertinent uncle humphrey you know my master scorns to strike his servants you talk as if the world was now just as it was when my old master and you were in your youth when you went to dinner because it was so much a clock when the great blow was given in the hall at the pantry door and all the family came out of their holes in such strange dresses and formal faces as you see in the pictures in our long gallery in the country why you wild rogue you could not fall to your dinner till a formal fellow in a black gown said something of the meat as if the cook had not made it ready enough sirrah who do you prate after despising men of sacred characters i hope you never heard my good young master talk so like a profligate sir i say you put upon me when i first came to town about being orderly the doctrine of wearing shams to make linen last clean a fortnight keeping my clothes fresh and wearing a frock within doors sirrah i gave you those lessons because i supposed at the time your master and you might have dined at home every day and cost you nothing then you might have made a good family servant but the gang you have frequented since at chocolate houses in taverns in a continual round of noise and extravagance i don't know what you heavy inmates call noise and extravagance but we gentlemen who are well fed and cut a figure sir think it a fine life as we must be very pretty fellows who are kept only to be looked at uh, very well sir i hope the fashion of being lewd and extravagant despising of decency and order is almost at an end since it has arrived at persons of your quality master humphrey <laughs> you are an unhappy lad to be sent up to town in such queer days as you were why now sir the lackeys are the men of pleasure of the age the top gamesters and many a lace coat about town have had their education in our party-coloured regiment false lovers have a taste of music poetry be do dress politics ruined damsels and when we are tired of this lewd town and have a mind to take up whip into our master's wigs and linen and merry fortunes heyday nay sir our order is carried up to the highest dignities and distinctions step but into the painted chamber and by our titles you take us all for men of quality then again come down to the court of requests and you see us all laying our broken heads together for the good of the nation and though we never carry a question nemine cortecente yet this i can say with a safe conscience and i wish every gentleman of our cloth could lay his hand upon his heart and say the same so i never took so much as a single mug of beer for my vote in all my life sirrah there is no enduring your extravagance i'll hear you prate no longer i wanted to see you to inquire how things go with your master as far as you understand them i suppose he knows he is to be married to-day ay sir he knows it and is dressed as gay as the sun but between you and i my dear he has a very heavy heart under all that gaiety as soon as he was dressed i retired but overheard him sigh in the most heavy manner he walked thoughtfully to and fro in the room then went into his closet when he came out he gave me this for his mistress whose maid you know is passionately fond of your fine person the poor fool is so tender and loves to hear me talk of the world and the plays operas and ridottos for the winter the parks and bellsides for our summer diversions and lard says she you are so wild but you have a world of humour ah coxcomb well but why don't you run with your master's letter to mrs lucinda as he ordered you because mistress lucinda is not so easily come at as you think for not easily come at uh, why sirrah are not her father and my old master agreed that she and mr bevel are to be one flesh before to-morrow morning it's no matter for that her mother it seems mistress sealand has not agreed to it 
and you must know master humphrey that in that family the grey mare is the better horse what dost thou mean in one word mistress sealand pretends to have a will of her own and has provided a relation of hers a stiff starched philosopher and a wise fool for her daughter for which reason for these ten days past she has suffered no message nor letter from my master to come near her and where had you this intelligence from a foolish fond self that can keep nothing from me one that will deliver this letter to if she is rightly managed what her pretty handmaid mrs phyllis even she sir this is the very hour you know she usually comes hither under a pretence of a visit to your housekeeper forsooth but in reality to have a glance at your sweet face i warrant you nothing else in nature you must know i love to fret and play with the little wanton play with the little wanton what will this world come to i met her this morning in a new manteau and petticoat not a bit the worse for her lady's wearing and she has always new thoughts and new airs with new clothes then she never fails to seal some glance or gesture from every visitant at the house and is indeed the whole town of the coquettes at second hand but here she comes in one motion she speaks and describes herself better than all the words in the world can then i hope dear sir when your own affair is over you will be so good as to mind your masters with her dear humphrey you know my master's my friend and those are people i never forget ah sauciness itself ah, but i'll leave you to do your best for him exit enter phyllis oh mr thomas is mrs sugarkey at home lad one is almost ashamed to pass along the streets the town is quite empty and nobody of fashion left in it and the ordinary people do stare to see anything dressed like a woman of condition as if it were on the same floor as them pass by alas alas it is a sad thing to walk oh fortune fortune what a sad thing to walk why madam phyllis do you wish yourself lame no mr tom but i wish i were generally carried in a coach or a chair and of a fortune neither to stand nor go but to totter or slide to be short-sighted or to stare to fleer in the face to look distant to observe to overlook yet all become me and if i was rich i could twire and loll as well as the best of them <sighs> oh tom tom is it not a pity that you should be so great a coxcomb and i so great a coquette and yet be such poor devils as we are mistress phyllis i am your humble servant for that yes mr thomas i know how much you are my humble servant and i know what you said to miss judy upon seeing her in one of her lady's cast manteaus that any one would have thought her the lady and that she had ordered the other to wear it till it sat easy for now only it was becoming to my lady it was only a covering to miss judy it was a habit this you said after somebody or other oh tom tom thou art as false and as base as the best gentleman of them all ah but you wretch talk to me no more on the old odious subject don't i say tom in a submissive tone retiring i know not how to resist your commands madam ha commands about parting are grown mighty easy to you of late tom aside oh, i have her i have nettled and put into the right temper to be wrought upon and set to prating why truly to be plain with you mistress phyllis i can take little comfort of late in frequenting a house pray mr thomas what is it all of a sudden offends your nicety at our house i don't care to speak particulars but i dislike the whole ha i thank you sir i am part of that whole mistake me not good phyllis good phyllis saucy enough but however i say it is that thou art a part which gives me pain for the disposition of the whole 
you must know madam to be serious i am a man at the bottom of prodigious nice honour you are too much exposed to company at your house to be plain i don't like so many that would be your mistress lovers whispering to you don't think to put that upon me you say this because i wrung you to the heart when i touched your guilty conscience about judy ah phyllis phyllis if you but knew my heart i know too much on it nay then poor crispo's fate and mine are one therefore give me leave to say i'll sing at least as he does upon the same occasion etc what do you think i'm to be fobbed off with a song i don't question but you have sung the same to miss judy too don't disparage your charms good phyllis with jealousy of so worthless an object besides she is a poor hussy and if you doubt the sincerity of my love you will allow me true to my interest you are a fortune phyllis what would the fop be at now in good time indeed you shall be setting up a fortune dear mistress phyllis you have such a spirit that we shall never be dull in marriage when we come together but i tell you you are a fortune and you have an estate in my hands he pulls out a purse she eyes it what pretence have i to what is in your hands mr tom as thus there are hours you know when a lady is neither pleased or displeased neither sick or well when she lolls or loiters when she is without desires from having more of everything than she knows what to do with well what then when she has not life enough to keep her bright eyes quite open to look at her own dear image in the glass explain thyself and don't be so fond of thy own prating there are also prosperous and good-natured moments is when a knot or a patch is happily fixed when the complexion particularly flourishes well what then i have not patience why then or on the like occasions we servants who have skill to know how to time business see when such a pretty folded thing as this shows a letter may be presented laid or dropped as best suits the present humour and madam because it is a long wearisome journey to run through all the several stages of a lady's temper my master who is the most reasonable man in the world presents you this to bear your charges on the road gives her the purse ha now you think me a corrupt hussy oh fie i only think you'll take the letter nay i know you do but i know my own innocence i take it for my mistress's sake i know it my pretty one i know it yes i say i do it because i would not have my mistress deluded by one who gives no proof of his passion but i'll talk more of tips as you see me on my way home no tom i assure thee i take this trash of thy master's not for the value of the thing but as it convinces me he has a true respect for my mistress i remember a verse to the purpose they may be false who languish and complain but they who part with money never feign exeunt scene two bevel jr's lodgings bevel jr reading these moral writers practise virtue after death this charming vision of murzer such an author consulted in a morning sets the spirit for the vicissitudes of the day better than the glass does a man's person but what a day i have to go through to put on an easy look with an aching heart if this lady my father urges me to marry should not refuse me my dilemma is insupportable but why should i fear it is she not in equal distress with me has not the letter i sent her this morning confessed my inclination to another nay have i not moral assurances of her engagements too to my friend myrtle it's impossible but she must give in to it for sure to be denied is a favour any man may pretend to it must be so well then with the assurance of being rejected i think i may confidently say to my father i am ready to marry her then let me resolve upon what i am not very good at though is an honest dissimulation enter tom sir john bevel sir is in the next room dunce why did you not bring him in i told him sir you were in your closet i thought you had known sir it was my duty to see my father anywhere going himself to the door tom aside the devil's in my master he has always more wit than i have 
Beville Jr. introducing Sir John. Sir, you are the most gallant, the most complacent of all parents. Sure, tis not a compliment to say these lodgings are yours. Why would you not walk in, sir? I was loath to interrupt you unseasonably on your wedding day. One to whom I am beholden for my birthday might have used less ceremony. Well, son, I have intelligence you have writ to your mistress this morning. It would please my curiosity to know the contents of a wedding-day letter, for courtship must then be over. I assure you, sir, there is no insolence in it upon the prospect of such a vast fortunes being added to our family, but much acknowledgment of the lady's greater desert. But, dear Jack, are you in earnest in all this? And will you really marry her? Did I ever disobey any command of yours, sir? Nay, any inclination that I saw you bent upon? Why, I can't say you have, son. But methinks in this whole business you have not been so warm as I could have wished you. You have visited her, it's true, but you have not been particular. Everyone knows you can say and do as handsome things as any man, but you have done nothing but lived in the general, been complacent only. As I am ever prepared to marry, if you bid me, so I am ready to let it alone, if you will have me. Humphrey enters unobserved. Look you there now. Why, what am I to think of this so absolute and so indifferent a resignation? Think? That I am still your son? Sir, you have been married, and I have not. And you have, sir, found the inconvenience there is when a man weds with too much love in his head. I have been told, sir, that at the time you married you made a mighty bustle on the occasion. There was challenging and fighting, scaling walls, locking up the lady, and the gallant under an arrest for fear of killing all his rivals. Now, sir, I suppose you have found the ill consequences of these strong passions and prejudices, in preference of one woman to another, in case of a man's becoming a widower. How is this? I say, sir, experience has made you wiser in your care of me, for, sir, since you lost my dear mother, your time has been so heavy, so lonely, and so tasteless, that you are so good as to guard me against the like unhappiness by marrying me prudently by way of bargain and sale. For, as you well judge, a woman that is espoused for a fortune is yet a better bargain if she dies for then a man still enjoys what he did marry the money and is disencumbered of what he did not marry the woman but pray sir do you think lucinda then a woman of such little merit pardon me sir i don't carry it so far neither i am rather afraid i shall like her too well she has for one of her fortune a great many needless and superfluous good qualities i'm afraid son there's something i don't see yet something that's smothered under all this raillery not in the least sir if the lady is dressed and ready you see i am i suppose the lawyers are ready too humphrey aside oh this may grow warm if i don't interpose sir uh, mr sealand is at the coffee-house and has sent to speak with you oh that's well then i warrant the lawyers are ready son you'll be in the way you say if you please, sir, I'll take a chair and go to Mr. Sealand's, where the young lady and I will wait to your leisure. By no means. The old fellow will be so vain if he sees. Aye, but the young lady, sir, will think me so indifferent. Humphrey, aside to Beville, Jr. Aye, there you are right. Press your readiness to go to the bride. He won't let you. Beville, Jr., aside to Humphrey. Are you sure of that? How he likes being prevented. Sir John Bevel, looking on his watch. No, no. You are an hour or two too early. You'll allow me, sir, to think it too late to visit a beautiful, virtuous young woman in the pride and bloom of life, ready to give herself to my arms and place her happiness or misery for the future in being agreeable or displeasing to me is a... Uh, call a chair no 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 dear jack this sealand is a moody old fellow there's no dealing with some people but by managing with indifference we must leave to him the conduct of this day it is the last of his commanding his daughter sir he can't take it ill that i am impatient to be hers pray let me govern in this matter you can't tell how humorsome some old fellows are 
There's no offering reason to some of them, especially when they are rich. Aside. If my son should see him before I brought old Seelan into better temper, the match would be impracticable. Humphrey, aside to Sir John. Pray, sir, let me beg you to let Mr. Bevel go. See whether he will or not. Then to Bevel. Pray, sir, command yourself. Since you see my master is positive, it is better you should not go. My father commands me as to the object of my affections, but I hope he will not as to the warmth and height of them. So, I must even leave things as I found them, and in the meantime, at least, keep old Sealand out of his sight. Well, son, I'll go myself and take orders in your affair. You'll be in the way, I suppose, if I send to you. I'll leave your old friend with you. Humphrey, don't let him stir, do you hear? Your servant, your servant. Exit Sir John. I have a sad time on it, sir, between you and my master. I see you are unwilling, and I know his violent inclinations for the match. I must betray neither, and yet deceive you both, for your common good. Heaven grant a good end of this matter. Ah, but there is a lady, sir, that gives your father much trouble and sorrow. You'll uh, pardon me. Humphrey, I know thou art a friend to both, and in that confidence I dare tell thee that lady is a woman of honour and virtue. You may assure yourself I never will marry without my father's consent, but give me leave to say, too, this declaration does not come up to a promise that I will take whomsoever he pleases. Come, sir, I wholly understand you. You would engage my services to free you from this woman whom my master intends you to make way in time for the woman you have really a mind to. Honest Humphrey, you have always been a useful friend to my father and myself. I beg you continue your good offices, and don't let us come to the necessity of a dispute, for, if we should dispute, I must either part with more than life, or lose the best of fathers. My dear master, were I but worthy to know this secret, that so near concerns you, my life, uh, my all, should be engaged to serve you. This, sir, I dare promise, that I am sure I will, and can be secret. Your trust at worst, but leaves you where you were. And if I cannot serve you, I will at once be plain, and tell you so. That's all I ask. Thou hast made it now my interest to trust thee. Be patient, then, and hear the story of my heart. I am all attention, sir. You may remember, Humphrey, that in my last travels my father grew uneasy at my making so long a stay at Toulon. I remember it. He was apprehensive some woman had laid hold of you. His fears were just, for there I first saw this lady. She is of English birth. Her father's name was Danvers a younger brother of an ancient family, and originally an eminent merchant of Bristol, who, upon repeated misfortunes, was reduced to go privately to the Indies. In this retreat Providence again grew favourable to his industry, and in six years' time restored him to his former fortunes. On this he sent directions over that his wife and little family should follow him to the Indies. His wife, impatient to obey such welcome orders, would not wait the leisure of a convoy, but took the first occasion of a single ship, and, with her husband's sister only, and this daughter, then scarce seven years old, undertook the fatal voyage. For here, poor creature, she lost her liberty and life. She and her family, with all they had, were unfortunately taken by a privateer from Toulon, being thus made a prisoner, though as such not ill-treated, yet the fright, the shock, and cruel disappointment seized with such violence upon her unhealthy frame, she sickened, pined, and died at sea. Poor soul, old oh, the helpless infant! Her sister yet survived, and had the care of her. The captain, too, proved to have humanity, and became a father to her, for having himself married an Englishwoman, and being childless, he brought her into Toulon with her little countrywoman, presenting her, with all her dead mother's movables of value, to his wife, to be educated as his own adopted daughter. Fortune here seemed again to smile on her. Only to make her frowns more terrible, for in his height of fortune this captain, too, 
her benefactor, unfortunately, was killed at sea, and dying intestate, his estate fell wholly to an advocate, his brother, who, coming to take possession there, found, among his other riches, this blooming virgin at his mercy. He durst not, sir, abuse his power. No wonder if his pampered blood was fired at the sight of her. In short, he loved, but when all arts and gentle means had failed to move, he offered to his menaces in vain, denouncing vengeance on her cruelty, demanding her to account for all her maintenance from her childhood, seized on her little fortune as his own inheritance, and was dragging her by violence to prison, when Providence at the instant interposed, and sent me, by miracle, to relieve her. "'Twas providence indeed. But pray, sir, after all this trouble, how came this lady at last to England?' The disappointed advocate, finding she had so unexpected a support, on cooler thoughts descended to a composition which I, without her knowledge, secretly discharged. That generous concealment made the obligation double. Having thus obtained her liberty, I prevailed, not without some difficulty, to see her safe to England, where, no sooner arrived, but my father, jealous of my being imprudently engaged, immediately proposed this other fatal match that hangs upon my quiet. I find, sir, you are irrecoverably fixed upon this lady. As my vital life dwells in my heart, and yet you see what I do to please my father, walk in this pageantry of dress, this splendid covering of sorrow, but, Humphrey, you have your lesson. Now, sir, I have but one material question. Ask it freely. Is it then your own passion for this secret lady, or hers for you, that gives you this aversion to the match your father has proposed you? I shall appear, Humphrey, more romantic in my answer than in all the rest of my story, for though I dote on her to death, and have no little reason to believe she has the same thoughts for me, yet, in all my acquaintance, and utmost privacies with her, I never once directly told her that I loved. How was it possible to avoid it? My tender obligations to my father have laid so inviolable a restraint upon my conduct that, till I have his consent to speak, I am determined on that subject to be dumb forever. Well, sir, to your praise be it spoken, you are certainly the most unfashionable lover in Great Britain. Enter Tom. Sir, Master Myrtle's at the next door, and if you are at leisure, we'll be glad to wait on you. Whenever he pleases. Hold, Tom, did you receive no answer to my letter? Sir, I was desired to call again, for I was told her mother would not let her be out of her sight. But about an hour hence, Mistress Lettice said I should certainly have one. Very well. Exit Tom. Sir, I will take another opportunity. In the meantime, I only think it proper to tell you that, from a secret I know, you may appear to your father as forward as you please, to marry Lucinda without the least hazard of its coming to a conclusion. Sir, your most obedient servant. Honest Humphrey, continue but my friend in this exigence, and you shall always find me yours. Exit Humphrey. I long to hear how my letter has succeeded with Lucinda, but I think it cannot fail, for, at worst, were it possible she could take it ill, her resentment of my indifference may as probably occasion a delay as her taking it right. Poor Myrtle! What terrors must he be in, in all this while, since he knows she is offered to me, and refused to him? There is no conversing or taking any measures with him for his own service, but I ought to bear with my friend, and use him as one in adversity. All his disquiets by my own I prove, the greatest grief's perplexity in love. Exit. End of Act One